The Laura Flanders Show. This is a place to go for stories of resilience, power shifting, and change rooted in love. This is Leah Penniman from Soul Fire Farm. The Laura Flanders Show is made possible by listeners just like you. You can become a sustaining member and help keep our programming independent, audacious, and ad-free. Go to patreon.com forward slash the LF show and become a member. And this is The Laura Flanders Show, a TV and radio program that shines a light on the solutions of tomorrow today. We report on the people and movements driving systemic change from the worlds of politics, arts, and entrepreneurship. Welcome. The subversive healing and celebratory powers of music and arts are at the heart of this week's conversation, the second in our series of media roundtables hosted by Sarah Lomax-Reese and Mitra Kalita, founder-directors of URL Media, a network of black and brown community news outlets. Meet the BIPOC Press is a monthly feature of the Laura Flanders Show with URL. Coming up, some honest talk about the hit movie In the Heights and health advice listen to more music more now over to sarah and mitra thanks laura this week's url media roundtable is focused on black and brown joy this is something that we all need way more of in our lives it's been a very difficult year all of us have been navigating the pandemic and systemic racism and all of the things around the election with uh, white supremacy rearing its very ugly head. And so today we're going to lean into what URL actually means, uplift, respect, and love. And we're gonna be joined by two wonderful guests, Saida Pagan, who is a freelance journalist for Palabra, which is the National Association of Hispanic Journalists digital publication. And also Dr. Guthrie Ramsey, who is a musician, a composer, a pianist, and a professor of of music history at the University of Pennsylvania. And both of them are going to be sharing their takes on two important things happening in arts and culture, the release of In the Heights, which was a a celebration of uh, Latino heritage and culture. Washington Heights! And uh, Black Music Month, which is the month of June. And uh, what that looks like in terms of being an expression for the African-American community to be empowered and to um, show itself love and community. So why don't we jump in? And Mitra, do you want to kick off the first question? So I wanted to begin uh, with Guthrie on what the role of music has been in expressing joy in the Black community. I'm always, as a music historian, thinking about how Black music has worked as one of the uh, primary ways through which African-Americans themselves have viewed themselves as fully human. And even the outside broader culture has uh, recognized the contributions of African-Americans to global musical culture as being uh, one that's so important. So when I think about this element of joy that the the music exudes and and passes along. I'm thinking about how 
if you have a people who have been marked as inferior, marked as an outsider, yet, you know, building the country, there's going to have to be uh, some kind of pressure valve. And I always think that artistic expression, whether it's through visual arts, you know, making pottery or painting paintings, making poems and writing novels, short stories, music, anything that wherein you can express your full humanity has always been that safety valve. And certainly music has been at the, at the forefront for African-Americans. I know that you wrote a book called Soundproof, Black Music, Magic, and Racial Intimacies, a history of African-American music from the slave era to the present. And so I, I wanted to just stay on that, that question that Mitra offered around um, what in your scholarship have you seen indicates this broader expression of music as communication, as liberation, as a way to show not just our full humanity, but our creativity and our ability to thrive amidst all of these difficult circumstances. In my research in this history, the first thing I learned is that one of the first sites of interracial interaction was during the Middle Passage. That voyage from in which the enslaved people were taken from the shores of Africa to the New World, there was music on, making on those ships. So at the same time that the uh, enslaved were able or coerced actually to dance to music and to sing for physical exercise, their oppressors would mark certain women for their singing talent as the ones who would be the first to be raped. Mm. Okay, this is all documented. So think about it. The very first context for interracial interaction was something where pain and joy were experienced together. And I would argue that this kind of interplay between pain and joy in music has marked the entire progression of African-American music in the United States and in the New World, in fact. So uh, if you go to the development of Black musical theater, let's say, in the 19th century, it was always uh, about being enslaved and becoming free. So going right to those themes of freedom has always been part of this history. Sarah mentioned the reopening. I rode the New York City subway for the first time, which was also um, an experience where you could just see, you know, the street musicians were out and about um, on each car. New York was really feeling back on that subway ride. Um, and the first movie I saw in a theater, there was no question of what that movie would be. It was In the Heights, uh, which is a movie that kind of, to Guthrie's point, really crystallizes this balance of pain and joy and not necessarily being sure which one you're experiencing in this immigrant community in Washington Heights. It felt for me like the perfect transition film out of the pandemic. It was truly joyous. Saida, I know you and I have both seen the film. I just, I just wondered, did you have a similar reaction? What, what did you think of In the Heights? Well, I thought it was a wonderful film. It was inspiring. Actually, after the film was over, I actually asked 
some people who had seen it in the audience, what they thought, and everyone really enjoyed it. Uh, you talk about the energy, you talk about realizing your dreams, and that's really what it's all about. What does a film like that, in terms of representation, mean for the Latino community? Well, I think people obviously want to see themselves on camera. They want to see their stories told. And it's been a long, long time since we've actually seen this because this film represents people from the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Cuba, perhaps other parts of Latin America. There were some characters whose backgrounds we did not know for sure. But I think people really enjoy seeing themselves and seeing their stories told. Yeah, I think the other theme that I picked up on that's definitely pandemic related was one of reinvention. Um, it just felt like through music and the dancing, you know, I saw New York in a new way, but I also felt like who better than the immigrant to lead us through starting over and coming out of this. Um, certainly our communities have been hit so hard in the pandemic. And so, you know, I might be assigning a lot of meaning that Lin-Manuel Miranda never intended to in the Heights, um, just from our own journey. I'm from the other Heights, Jackson Heights in New York City. But I, I really did think that this film was symbolic, um, especially for kind of guiding us out of this moment. It has been received with some controversy. Uh, you know, I, I feel a little sheepish kind of gushing over it because I loved it so, and then I come back and start to see criticisms of the film for not being um, wholly representative of the Latino community. There've been accusations of erasure of the Afro uh, Latino community. And um, I just wondered, Saida, whether you've written about that and what, what you make of that argument as well. Well, I saw the argument begin online a few days ago, and I've had a chance to think about it. I am from New York. I am of Puerto Rican background and obviously uh, mixed race myself. I don't think it was intentional. Uh, if Perhaps they were to have done it over again. They might have perhaps had other stars in there that were perhaps of a little darker complexion to show the, it was an opportunity to show the range of Latinos because I saw, I know that the issue is not enough Afro Latinos in the movie, the people who were completely identifiable as of African descent, from what I could see, were most likely African-American characters. And it would have been nice to show the range, perhaps have some darker Latinos speaking Spanish, just so that you would know, or the fact that we all mix, you know, dark and light couple. That would have been something, but I don't know if that was the intention of the movie. He's uh, taken note of, uh, the, the producers have taken note of this. And in the future, I'm sure there's going to be perhaps a better representation of the complete Latin experience. It's kind of unfair to me sometimes that like a movie like that would have to bear all of the burden to represent everything that people feel they need. Because after all, it is a, a film telling one story in a single way. Now we can offer our critiques about, well, in order to become a blockbuster, in order to become uh, a very high selling artist, there are compromises that need to be made along the way because generally studios don't green light things that won't have that universal appeal. And universal appeal sometimes means changing your story, change, you know, making things simpler, making things easier to digest. 
that's why I love the trend toward more because the more you have, the less burden it is on one film to do everything, you know, to, to show all of the complexities that we want to, to show. And that goes for musical artists as well. You know, it's just hard on artists sometimes because actually they didn't get in that business. If they're an actor or a singer or a pianist, they didn't get in that business to represent, <laughs> you know, something larger than themselves. They got in it because they love to sing or they love to play. They want to, to bring beauty and value to the world. This is the Laura Flanders Show. I'm Laura. This time we're talking about the subversive healing and celebratory powers of music and media with Saida Pagan, a contributor to Palabra, that's a journalism site run by the National Association of Hispanic Journalists, and Dr. Guthrie Ramsey, a music historian, jazz musician, and composer who was recently interviewed on WURD Radio in Philadelphia. Meet the BIPOC Press is a monthly feature of the Laura Flanders Show. This week's celebration for black music Month is hosted by Sarah Lomax Reese and Mitra Kalita, founder directors of URL Media, a network of black and brown community news outlets that share content and revenue. You can find more of our Meet the BIPOC Press roundtables in our archives at our website, lauraflanders.org. That's also where you can sign up for our weekly newsletter to receive information on all of our streaming events and web exclusives, including my commentaries and the latest uncut conversation with abolitionist Mariam Kaba and guest co-host Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis. Next, while some have complained about the lack of Afro-Latinos in Lin-Manuel Miranda's recently released movie In the Heights, our panel shares why that very debate is a breakthrough. But first, here's Wade in the Water by Dr. Guthrie Ramsey from his album Musicology Presents a Spirit Spiritual Vibe, Volume 1, an album he dedicated to Reverend Dr. Leslie Callahan and Annabelle Callahan, whom he notes have together created a place to dream of radical freedom grounded in love at the St. Paul's Baptist Church in Philadelphia. hear you and I, I agree with that. I think that sometimes, you know, there is way too much weight and pressure on a um, breakthrough kind of film, like like what we're seeing in terms of the controversy around the Afro-Latino um, representation in In the Heights. But at the same time, I welcome that critique. I think that it's valuable to always challenge these things, we don't need to, you know, become like trolls on Twitter. We don't need to like 
destroy the, the film. But I think it's important to raise these questions because for so long, these questions around colorism were silent. They, they, they weren't discussed. And so I appreciate the fact that it's raised and, and I appreciate the fact that Lin-Manuel Miranda has said, I'm listening. If we're open to hearing the critique, we don't have to own it, but if we're open to hearing it, we might be able to make some different choices going forward. And I, I, I appreciate that and I welcome it. As a Latina with a darker than average complexion, I have um, been very aware that in Spanish language television itself, so many of the images are not realistic of what is actually the case, what we really look like. And so I think some of that pressure um, should be brought upon those who produce the telenovelas, those are the soap, Spanish soap operas, uh, the news itself. Uh, it wasn't until maybe a few years ago that the Afro-Latina uh, anchor woman was hired. So I think the word should get out to many people that we look so many different ways. I just wanted to share that with you because it's something that I've been wanting to say publicly for a long time. And I think now the time is right for that message to be heard. Sarah, speaking of singing and dancing, URL has been replaying words, songs of freedom from Black Music Month. It's my Twitter feed is really making me want to dance when I'm looking at you all or highlighting there. How are you um, defining freedom music as you're doing that? And tell me a little bit about um, that line of coverage for you guys. Songs of Freedom, it was really conceptualized as something to dovetail into, again, Juneteenth and the, the reopening after coronavirus. And in, in my mind, you know, we've got these amazing artists like Nina Simone. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. We talk about public enemy, fight the power. You know, we, we tried to identify different songs that represent something different to each generation. You know, so we have gospel, we have um, soul, we have funk and jazz. And so just really looking at our incredible range in the black community around songs that are about restoring our, our, our humanity, our vitality. And I think that this is a moment where that, that's really necessary. If I could pivot back to, to Guthrie, you know, we talk about joy, but I think that there's also something very profoundly healing and restorative about music. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about about that? Sure. Uh, in May of 2019, I was diagnosed with cancer, and uh, as a healthy eater, someone that really focused on health, it was quite a shock. I did what my elders taught me to do, and that is to. I planted a garden <laughs> and uh, started growing tomatoes. And uh, I started to record the music that I wanted to heal to. So I arranged some old songs that I had grown up with as a child, some uh, spiritual songs. And I produced a, uh, an album called A Spiritual Vibe, Volume One. And as I was, you know, recuperating from surgery and all of that, I would listen to the music and it just, it really got me together. I'm happy to report that I am cancer free now. And uh, I believe it was the combination of following the science, but also following that elder and ancestor science too, of what it would take to uh, heal my body and keep my 
soul together, keep my mind right and, and all of that. I just think it's part of the gift of our music is that it is uh, allows us to transport to a safe space, to a healing space. Guthrie, I want to tell you, my father has had two strokes and each time I am convinced it's music that brings his speech back. Um, and there's three songs I'm thinking of or three artists um, from different cultures and different walks of life. Um, one is anything from Kiss in the 1970s is like my father's coming to America story. The second, which really got through to him, which Saida, maybe you know this song, it's a merengue tune, Dame la Mano Paloma, which um, he just associates with those years in Puerto Rico, which for him were like very uh, freewheeling. And then uh, kind of to Guthrie's point, songs from his boyhood, which are folk songs um, that thankfully I can now find on YouTube. Um, and so just through his own recovery, like my family would play these songs and we would, to your point, we would kind of teeter between crying and laughing over everything that they represented. So I, I just think that's such a beautiful sentiment of what they can represent in our own healing process. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, music as a form of of protest and activism and a, a, a way that, that the black community has rallied and communicated with each other to advance our, our calls for freedom. Protest music can't, it's not always about I'm making a protest song. It's about a song emerges in the context of strife and it's gravitated too. So that's one thing. There's also this idea that uh, you can use music uh, and deploy it uh, as resistance. And I'm thinking of the instance of when, at the height of the civil rights movement, when, say, the uh, white supremacist cops would roll around and visit the, uh, a civil rights uh, campaign that was going on in a church, in a black church, and they would be there surveilling. And then when they left, the only way for the community to get back into that frame of mind is that they needed to be in is for someone to raise one of those, uh, you know, old folk songs of the church and to get everybody's mind right. So someone would start singing to kind of clear the air, to get everybody's, you know, head moving back into the right space. So I just think about those two ideas a lot, that some of it is by accident and some of it is quite intentional in its use. Well, this is the question for everyone, but I'm starting with Mitra. What brings you joy right now? What is bringing you joy? Well, our newsletter, we actually, because we were launched out of the pandemic, as you said, we were intentional about infusing joy in a really tragic time for our neighborhood. And so our newsletter, um, it's literally a feature called Last Word, and we always feature an artist. Um, and it started with poetry, and moved on to visual um, arts, so a lot of paintings, uh, but you know, graphics and photography as well. And so in some ways for me, even editing that newsletter, which is basically capturing the pain and suffering and ways to help a community every week, oh, like I am guaranteed to end both as the editor and publisher of that, as well as the reader, on an uplifting note. And that's really been an important part of our identity. Saida, how about you? What is bringing you joy these days? 
I think just the fact that I got through all of this and my family is, um, you know, okay, safe and, and uh, healthy. I am now flooded actually with a lot of work, which is wonderful. I do a lot of freelance things in addition to being a, a contributor for Palabra, which is the online publication for the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. I also uh, work as a reporter for the city of Los Angeles, and we just won a wonderful award for our work last year. So that's bringing me joy and just the fact that uh, I'm here and I'm able to do these wonderful things like be on the show today. I got to sit down with my mother Whew. to a plate of red beans and rice about a week ago after nearly two years of not seeing her. And just to see the joy in her face, you know, through everything that we've been through. She's 93 and she made it through. So that gives me lots of joy. Sarah, how about you? I think that, that this process of cultivating present day, present, um, present awareness is what's bringing me joy because last year, if it, if it taught me anything, it, um, it demonstrated how um, time is a little bit of an illusion. All we have is right here, right now. And, and if we miss that, then we're missing everything. So this idea of just opening up and, and showing up for the right here, right now is, um, is bringing me joy. I think that brings us to the right here, right now, which has been a fabulous conversation. Thank you, Saida, Guthrie, Mitra. Thank you all so much for a very nourishing and um, joyful conversation. And now to Laura Flanders for some closing remarks. Black joy, black pain. Well, there was a certain amount of pain at the headquarters of Byron Brown, the four-term incumbent African-American mayor of Buffalo, New York, June 22nd, as he watched himself go down to defeat against an activist candidate whom he wouldn't even debate. But the pain there was nothing in comparison to the joy at Team India. That's India Walton, single mom, nurse, Former head of a community land trust, India Walton ran a race that nobody thought she could win except for the powerful movement groups at her back and some of us in the media. And you want to talk about what difference media makes? She launched her campaign for mayor on the day our show about her work premiered in her hometown. And she credited seeing herself reflected in our programming to her community for giving her some of the courage she needed to run for public office. Media is not just important because it informs people and builds public consciousness. It's also important because of the way it builds public confidence. When you see yourself reflected in a way that you can recognize, that gives you belief that you're important, that you can play an important part in the society that you live in, that you matter. That's why media, like URL media's members matter. And that's why we do this work. 
For more information on this week's guests, go to patreon.com forward slash the LF show. You'll find their suggested reading list and additional related episodes to explore and all of our archives. We invite you to watch the premiere of every week's episode on our YouTube channel at 1130 Sundays, where you can participate in a live chat with me and my invited guests. That's Eastern Time. All those details are at patreon.com forward slash the LF show available for members and non-members. But while you're there, we hope that you will join us. Become a Patreon partner by committing to a monthly contribution of 3 5 or $11 a month. Your support makes it possible for this show to remain free to millions on public television and radio across the country, as well as as a podcast. So if you can do it, help us. Do your bit. Become a Patreon partner. And thank you, all our Patreon partners, out there. We're excited to share this platform with fellow independent journalists like today's URL media panel. Go to patreon.com forward slash the LF show to show that you support this work. This show is produced by yours truly, Laura Flanders, with Matt Colicello, Jeremiah Cothran, Mercedes Grostiaga, Jeannie Hopper, Nat Needham, Charlotte Carpenter, David Newman, Rory O'Connor, Ryan Hoates, Sabrina Artel, and Jeanette Hernandez. Major funding for this program is provided by the Novo Park, Ellen Poss Family, Hisuku Wilson Foundations, the Schumann Media Center, Rising Fund at Tides, Kim Connor and Nick Groombridge, Jane Fonda, and listeners like you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for contributing. Thanks for your ideas. Stay kind. Stay curious. Until the next time, I'm Laura. <laughs>